Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, regulatory compliance is becoming a much, much bigger issue on Wall Street in the wake of the financial crisis. How do big banks deal with the extra attention they get these days from the SEC and other regulators? We are very fortunate today. We're going to have John Finley, who is the chief legal officer of Blackstone, who is going to talk to us about it. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul and Steve here in the studio coming to you uh, on this, this fine, fine day. Stephen Grosser, how are you? I'm very good. You are? That's great. It's a Jobs Friday, you know? I'm always excited. It is a Jobs Friday, although people probably won't be hearing this on Jobs Friday. Right, that is true. That is but. true. But we have. They understand uh, we do tape delay. They understand we do a tape delay, right? So, so I, basically, we spent most of the day talking about jobs report. We're thinking about uh, next week and the election. But we are taking a break from all that. We're taking a step back. Uh, we have Matt Jarzemski in the studio with us. Matt, how are you? I'm doing well, Paul. Thanks for having me. We're happy to have you. And the reason we wanted Matt and Matt and Grocer, uh, especially, you're going to take the lead on this one, is because we also have. In the studio, folks, we are fortunate to have with us today John Finley, Chief Legal Officer at Blackstone. John, how are you? Uh, great, great to be here. Thanks for having and, me. And and the reason we wanted to have you in is because what we wanted to focus on today, folks, we want a little conversation about uh, basically about Blackstone private equity firms and the the issues around regulations and 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 legal issues around what's going on in the PE firms and the PE industry because there there's a lot and uh you John at the top of uh the legal chain there at Blackstone Thank in a unique position to kind of address all these issues so this is going to be this is going to be a good one folks it's going to be really interesting really meaty so i have to be very honest and say that I'm probably the stupidest person on this subject out of the four of us. I don't believe that. <laughs> oh no, no, no! Please believe it. Absolutely believe it. Uh, so I'm I'm actually going to hand over most of this to Grocer and Matt, and I will just chime in every now and again. But let's uh, let's just dig right in there, um, John. Why don't you just kind of for our, our audience? Why don't you just kind of give us your background and tell us how you got to where you are? Sure. Um, Blackstone. I arrived in uh, 2010, and I had previously been at Simpson, Thatcher & Bartlett, a law firm in New York City, uh, does a lot of M&A work. And probably the conventional wisdom uh, was that I was going to do a lot of deal work when I came to Blackstone. Blackstone does a lot of deals, whether it's in uh, PE or real estate, uh, also has credit operation and um, uh, hedge fund solutions. But So that, that would have been what people would have thought, but when I got there, and as it, as it developed pretty quickly, and uh, my boss, uh, Steve Schwarzman, said, you know, you really, you know, on the deal work, we're, we will we'll muddle through with outside counsel and our deal professionals, but what we really need you to focus on is uh, this regulatory compliance, because you are really the last line of defense on this area that presents so much uh, reputational risk. So that's the, I would say, in terms of highest and best use, that's where I've been the most focused uh, what, over the past few years, and especially as it's continued to gear up. What what sort of changed, um, you know, in the minds of, you know, your bosses that they wanted you to focus on this from, you know, 2007 to 2010? 
Yeah, well, when, when uh, Dodd-Frank financial crisis, Dodd-Frank was passed in uh, 2010, and uh, the, uh, with following the financial crisis, we had already been registered as an investment advisor, but that was an area that uh, uh, many firms had not been registered, and that's what, 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 what came out of that, is that private equity firms and alternative asset managers needed now to register. And so the combination of that and the financial crisis uh, and the whole context, political environment, get people much more focused on uh, private equity. And so that was something they, they, you know, as it would turn out, it would get more and more focused. So we can talk a little further about. But so that was an area that they said, look, we really need you. And frankly, I'd say that was probably would have been probably true even without some of those changes that. You know, as the chief counsel, uh, you really are that last line of defense in terms of that compliance regulatory area. So that is 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 an area that you just have to be focused on. Yeah, I think that uh, you know everyday people recognize that since the financial crisis, uh, regulation has really changed the way Wall Street and you know big banks kind of operate and what they're what they're allowed to do. People in the private equity world and sort of um, Firms like Blackstone that, that do private equity investing as well as other kinds of alternative investing in real estate and other assets have become these just tremendously influential players in the financial markets and, and are also kind of attracting regulatory scrutiny themselves these days. So, John, why don't you tell us kind of how you build out uh, the team and the, the approach to kind of deal with that and, and kind of get ahead of the ball there? Yeah. Well, first, just to set a little bit of context, you know, it was in um – 2014, there was this sunshine speech that was given by uh, one of the um, uh, at the uh, OC, which is the exam staff, and talked about that, uh, reiterated that there was really going to be a much bigger focus on private equity. And this is the exam staff of the SEC, exactly. Yeah, the exam staff of the SEC, and there was going to be much more of a focus on it. And so it's no secret, Um, and there were uh, events prior to that, that made it no secret that the SEC was going to devote time and effort and energy to this industry. They had previously been pretty focused on hedge fund, uh, but they their, their interest and their focus drifted uh, towards uh, private equity, which uh, uh, was just getting a lot more attention. Um, so in terms of building it out, you know, I would say, the, in, in, in a sense, the question is, how do you make sure that you have a really good compliance function? And I would say the first thing that is um, uh, the most important is really the culture. The culture of the firm, the culture of the group, that that's really what distinguishes uh, compliance, that, that makes what I believe makes Blackstone a uh, 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 distinguishes it and other leaders from from others, which is it has a really terrific culture, and that really starts with uh, tone at the top. That people really believe that we have a culture of of, of zero defect, and that we're going to get it right, and we're going to do it right, uh, and we are going to make sure that we we don't have any kind of uh, uh, reputational uh, problem. I, the other aspect of the culture, um, uh, and 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 the other aspect of the culture that's important is that the compliance group be really well integrated with the businesses. I mean, if you have a compliance group that's viewed as sort of this rubber stamp in a windowless room, and we go to them after we've all really completed everything, and they're just going to say, "Gee, it's okay," it's not going to work. And so, 
there is a culture where we are uh, side by side with the business people. You may think they may not like that, but actually, eventually they do. Uh, because it makes everything, it facilitates, nothing comes up last minute. It's all thought of in advance. It makes it really smooth for them. So one of the cultural aspects is that there is this appreciation that we're all in it together. We're working together for the same role, and there's nothing oppositional. And I'd say the final thing in terms of the culture is that you've got to make sure it's easy in New York to have that culture, but as you expand globally, which we have, so we have offices in Singapore and Hong Kong and London and Mumbai. You need to make sure you've got that same DNA, that Blackstone DNA, and you've got to be the senior people really have to be visible in those offices, and you really need to think about how you communicate uh, that culture. So that's it on the cultural side. Um, but uh, they're also, um, or I would say we call it the um, uh, uh, th three T's, and uh, you have uh, technology, and uh, you have uh, talent and training. And those three um, are critical to building out really good compliance because we have training. Uh, look, it's never going to be Game of Thrones to do compliance training, but we, hmm. try to, we try to make it as engaging as possible. And the way you do that is it's not a check-the-box exercise, but the, the, the professionals really, oh, gee, I really could face this situation. You know, what if I do have this difficult problem where I know it's a little bit close to the edge? How do I deal with it? How do I deal with confidentiality issues when it seems so natural to provide Matt some information, but I really want to pull back, which obviously you don't want us to do that training. You should, yeah, you should provide more. <laughs> I should sit in on these meetings. <laughs> so um, uh, the, 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 the training, we've invested a tremendous amount on that training. We do training when people join the firm, training annual, special project training. So there's, uh, we do it for administrative personnel. So that's a big part of it. Second is uh, technology. I mean, if a compliance group is not focused on technology and how you can really make that uh, part of your solution, uh, they're failing. Uh, it's going to be a clear failure. I'll just give you three quick uh, examples. One, uh, on AML, which is um, money laundering, to prevent there isn't money laundering. And because we're not a bank and we have very, very uh, uh, um, um, a more limited uh, group and often institutions, not as big an issue for us, but still we have to go through that and check people out. And so we set up a, um, a something, uh, a, um, a system, a proprietary software that is just so much more quicker and effective in checking people out. For example, the business people will say, gee, you already checked this person out two weeks ago. Why are we going through the same process? This software makes us able to access prior information, know somewhere else in the firm that it's been looked at, and so it's much quicker. We have uh, online training that we do that's online. That it's called MindFlash, and what it allows is a much more uh, consistent message. Uh, that 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 uh, on on the training allows us to monitor it much better. We have we, we used to be very um, you know people would just like email or request in. Can I give this gift? Can I do uh, this 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 entertainment project? And now it's all tracked uh, through uh, a central monitoring, which allows it to be much easier to make sure that people aren't misstepping and things like that. Much 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 better organized. Certain bad guys you can't take out to the state yeah. dinners. <laughs> there are certain limitations. Then finally, just talent. We've invested in resources, uh, getting the, the the best people, and we're 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 growing at a rate faster than the firm. 
And I you're think talking about your, your group, group your is growing yeah. faster than the firm, and I think that's a reflection of we're investing the resources to really be able to anticipate and be uh, uh, ahead of, of, of the challenges. One other question, just taking a step back, I mean, this is across, I think, any industry. Compliance people can lo- be looked at warily. They can be looked at as sort of, you know, kind of getting in the way of you doing your job. When you were starting up, and this, boring, basically. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you, how did you overcome that? Were there steps that you took, or steps Blackstone took to help you, sort of, you know, make it easier um, to integrate? Uh, I'd say both at the firm and in the um, uh, in the group, uh, there is an ethos of being pragmatic. Now, you don't want your compliance person to be overly entrepreneurial. I mean, there's a limit <laughs> as to where you want to go in that direction. But you do, you don't want them to be. Uh, knee-jerk and mindless and not really be thinking, well, what's the point of this uh, rule? And are there, in fact, other ways that we can honor the letter and spirit of the rule but do the transaction in a different way? And that is a very strong cultural value, being uh, very thoughtful and uh, not just applying things in kind of a mechanistic uh, way and that applies across the firm. I've heard that that phrase. You know, oh, the person thinks in a mechanistic way, and so that applies uh, to the compliance people equally. And but I I will say at the same time, and we we just had a recent meeting. Steve talked to the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the compliance professionals at the group at a lunch, and he it was so empowering because he was telling them in terms of wanting to do the right thing. And I think that group hearing how you know, that he will back them up 100% if somebody's you know off the reservation and needs and needs backing. But at the same time, and you know we've talked with the group, you really want to because you know the rules really well and you think about them very thoughtfully. You really want to be an opinion leader. You almost want to be working with the business professional where they're asking, "Is this the right way to do it?" Yeah, um, this is good. I want to jump in here. I just want to. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We're going to keep taking that that wider lens view that we started with. Uh, John Finley from Blackstone. We will be back right after this. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet. oracle.com slash wallstreet. Hey, this is Stephen Perlberg from the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Are you interested in the biggest changes in the media and advertising business from Facebook to Snapchat? Tune into the WSJ Media Mix podcast for interviews with some of the biggest names in media, from Gawker CEO Nick Denton to Turner President David Levy. For more, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. And, and, and I, might, I might be wrong, John Finley. Do I just see you bouncing your head a little bit to our, this our music? music? Uh, I like it. it, it it's <laughs> good. Everybody likes the music. Everyone. Uh, welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast, folks. As always, I just want to remind you, you can check out more Wall Street Journal podcasts. We are at uh, wsj.com slash podcasts. 
Your Money Matters, the free-for-all speakeasy, of course, Money Beat, Tech News Briefing, WSJ Opinion, a lot there to, to offer you. We are on Twitter. We're at WSJ Podcasts. You can become a subscriber to Money Beat and all these other great podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and your Google Play Music app. We are in the studio today. Uh, myself, Steve Grosser, Matt Jarzemski, speaking with John Finley, who is Chief Legal Officer at Blackstone. Uh, John, I have, I have a question for you. So uh, last year, Blackstone, you know, certainly not a new piece of news here, pays $35 million to the SEC to settle a, a civil action there. And my question even isn't even so much about that action. My question is so much sort of like what happens – my question is about what happens after that and what is the relationship between a firm like yours and the SEC and, and how do you sort of – what interaction – and you know what? The reason I ask it is because I'm thinking like most people think like the relationship between any kind of PE or Wall Street firm and any kind of government regulator is like what, what you see on billions on Showtime. And I have to think that it can't exactly be like that. How do you interact with the SEC? How do you take a case like that one last year and kind of try to ensure that it doesn't happen to you again? And and how do you just go forward after something like that? Yeah, well, the again is an interesting uh, point because in that uh, uh, settlement uh, uh, where uh, – we uh, agreed to make the payments that you talked about. They basically involved two issues on a very simple level. Uh, they involved, uh, number one, that the discounts that a law firm had provided uh, were different uh, uh, from uh, to Blackstone than some of the portfolio companies. As was in the settlement order, it said that, you know, from our point of view and what we told the LPs, we thought the mix of work was different. Second of all, it dealt with we, and this is, you know, very clear, there's never an issue uh, that we can take, um, uh, that, that the monitoring fees get charged to portfolio companies. That was never the issue that whether you can take monitoring fees. But especially on IPOs, there was an acceleration of those monitoring fees that rather than continue to pay them after the company went public, and even though we would stay keep a stake in the company, they were accelerated. And the issue was, well, that wasn't really well disclosed in the uh, PPM, that mm-hmm. is the uh, offering documents. But and this comes to your question about how do you, uh, again, we actually on both those, and this is in the, in, the, in the order, when I joined the firm, I thought, you know, this, 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 uh, uh, this, this discount, that, that it's different, even if you know, we would be able to articulate why we were doing it because of the different mix of work to the LPs, I just want to change it. And so we eliminated that before the SEC came in and looked at the issue. Um, similarly, on the uh, monitoring fees, we, before the SEC raised the issue, uh, we had changed the way we did it. And we, elimin- we, we substantially modified, and uh, not completely, but very much materially diminished the ability in terms of how we could take the monitoring fees. And so when they came to look at it, um, the fact that we you know, looked at this uh, uh, previously uh, uh, was something that they noticed and, and, and said, gee, it's great that they had looked at this issue, um, but still resulted in having to deal with retroactively what had, mm-hmm. what had been done. But the reason I raise this is that we are constantly focused on trying to improve our procedures, our processes. And so... In this particular case, we actually had addressed both of the issues that they came to us subsequently after we had addressed them. And um, 
So we didn't sort of feel like, oh, my God, you know, wake up. We've got to sort of really focus on these mm-hmm. issues because, look, the SEC, it was really an example that we were, in a way, we were on the right issues and ahead of the issues, even though it nonetheless resulted in the payment it did. Yeah. Uh, but for um, uh, the, with the result that the SEC very much recognized and had actually relatively uh, a, a, a de- decent amount of section on our cooperation and remediation. Yeah, well, I was going to I was going to ask how, what also since you know in 2007 and since then the large P firms have gone public. How has that also changed the sort of regulatory sort of regime that you're under? For me. Uh, Going public makes it easier because, number one, you already have a culture of transparency. Two, you have the resources and scale of a public company, and you have the ability to serve your LPs better with those resources that are available to you. Two examples. You have internal audit. Most private companies don't have an internal audit function, and so we have a very high functioning internal audit, which basically is just another level of defense to be checking on auditing separate from what's going on at the businesses. And they report, among others, to the to the audit committee at the firm. And so with that sort of layer and a board of directors, it th- increases um, uh, ability to, 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 to function in compliance. And also valuation. I mean, if you have to report SEC type of when you think about the valuation process that's a real advantage yeah. because that's a real focus of are you valuing your investments correctly and so being public and having to already be in that sort of reporting cycle i think gives a big advantage to those that remain private mm-hmm. now beyond uh regulators blackstone and and its peers are also accountable to their investors and their funds uh you know pensions endowments kind of big institutions that that are looking for these type of investment products. And you guys manage uh, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of that kind of capital. I mean, what have you had to do to provide transparency to, to investors and keep keep them happy and keep them coming back for uh, a re-up when you're ready to raise the next fund? Yeah. Well, um, the saying goes, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And so we really live that because we believe that transparency is absolutely essential. Um, to functioning with our LPs, and we make it the highest priority. So, from a, so how do we do that? Well, first of all, from the investment standpoint, when they uh, invest, they're going to get a placement memorandum. So we got to have really good disclosure. And one of the things that, as the SEC has reminded firms, this focus on, well, was it in the offering document? It's nice that like you've notified them after the fact. But was it in the offering document? So that clearly has reinvigorated our review of making sure that the offering document gives people all the information they could possibly uh, need. In addition, they get quarterly statements that will break down the fees and will break down uh, expenses. They will get drawdown notices. They'll get distribution, all which provide opportunities to give that transparency. Of course, they do diligence beforehand, but some of the investors also do diligence um, uh, afterwards. I mean, we'll we'll get uh, questions from them. And I think that's a really important part of having this transparency, which is engagement uh, with uh, the LPs. And finally, of course, audited financials and doing the audited financials uh, uh, well and comprehensively and good footnotes, et cetera. But I do 
the critics of the transparency and private, I, th I believe it's exaggerated. And when you look, there's independent surveys which say that 65% of LPs uh, have a buoyant view of uh, their manager and only 6% see it in a negative light. Uh, you can't do that if you have bad transparency. And for us, Blackstone, more than uh, nine, we have 90% re-ups in successive funds. And again, that would be very difficult to achieve if people had issues with uh, transparency. So yeah. I think those sort of figures help put that in context. Yeah, and of course, by LPs, you mean limited partners. Limited or, partner or investors. Right. Yeah. Um, and then what about, you know, Given Blackstone's reach kind of around the globe, you know, I think we recently covered the sale of a, of a Blackstone-backed company's power plant development in the Philippines, for instance. So, you know, what's, what's the kind of regulatory framework like in all these far-flung corners of the world? Yeah. Uh, I would say two, two, two parts. Let me answer that. When I first came uh, to Blackstone um, and I talked to the board, one of the things they were the most focused on, I said, look, you, you guys are going to make good investments, it's going to go well, but a reputational hit is critical. And one of the areas they were very focused on is FCPA. Uh, it was also getting a lot of attention in the U.K. with the U.K. Bribery Act. And so that was an area that I spent a lot of attention on because we're, we've got portfolio companies around the world and we've got investments uh, that we're making around the world, to your point. And so we, need a, we needed a really good process. Uh, not that we didn't have a good process, but I think I, 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 we, we made it better. And uh, we do that on the investment part when you're investing in, a, in, in an area. And we're very uh, risk-based, so we sort of take a look. There's actually a code, a, a, a listing of, like, what's the most corrupt countries and <laughs> ranked from 1 to right, right. 189. And we try to get a very good sense of where it stands and do our – our diligence based on a risk-based basis, but then at, we also will make sure that we get uh, them to upgrade if we're not satisfied, and then we monitor. So it's a very comprehensive wow. process dealing with that issue. And then separately, um, I didn't want to – did you have uh, – I was going to say that that alone sounds like a, a, le a very difficult task logistically. Like, I mean, how many people do you have on just that alone? Well, that's the – uh, that is an area where we would rely on outside counsel. Yeah. So, for example, when we did a review, and we've done two since I've been there um, uh, across our portfolio, uh, we'll get outside counsel to assist okay. uh, with that and, of course, getting the cooperation of the, of, of the companies. Which just the goes world. to show how big a project that is. It was a big project. Right, yeah. right. No, no doubt about it. It makes me wonder, too, what is the most corrupt country. We don't invest in the most wrong countries. <laughs> they're, they're way off the map. You're not investing in the U.S.? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Everybody, of course, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You had a second part to the Well, answer, the second John. part of it is what's changing internationally with uh, the, the uh, regulation becoming much more active among international. So we've, we had meetings over the summer. Where I was presenting uh, it was senior management board, don't remember, it doesn't really matter. But the, 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 the point was that on the regulatory front, as we are dealing with what's going on in the U.S., that the non-U.S. regulators are getting much more active. And so it was when we first were dealing with Hong Kong, you know, the issue would be, gee, do you really need to be licensed? That was pretty much it. Now they're coming in, they're saying, gee, we want to look at your leverage, we want to look at your disclosure, we want to look at your valuation. Uh, China was uh, unregulated uh, in terms of um, uh, asset managers. And then they, they, they started to get 
into it with a, um, a self-regulation. They, they, they set up uh, Asset Management Association of China that had self-regulation. And um, that didn't work out completely uh, to the advantage of investors, uh, self-regulation of the managers. Some took advantage of it in terms of purporting to have more uh, of uh, uh, um, more of a reputation by virtue of this sort of this self-regulation. They put in uh, additional rules than more stringent rules, but in the meantime, which we didn't even know we were going to be regulated by them, the Chinese securities regulator came in and did an inspection uh, of us, and which went fine. But the the point is, it was a very fluid kind of situation, but is uh, reflective of that globally. Because in Europe, it's kind of obvious that that there's been a lot of regulation, but even in mm -hmm. Asia, it's 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 really ticking up in terms of how we're having to deal with it. One of the questions you mentioned, this is sort of taking a step back and, and talking about the technology and how important that is. Did, is this something that you guys went out and sort of tried to partner with various fintech teams and tested different technologies that you could overlay to, to facilitate uh, monitoring certain things, or did you build them internally? It's a great question, and it's really a mix. I mean, some of them, we, uh, we, it's, it's, it's an external solution, and, and others are proprietary to us. The one that is the, um, uh, the, uh, the AML, the money laundering, uh, is uh, proprietary to us. I, don't, I, I actually don't know how much we got help from others, but it's sort of our developed uh, product, and we have a really good uh, tech team, very, very cutting edge, and... Uh, so it's a it's it's a it's a mixture, and it really is a product of well, there was a need. And uh, again, while it was it was it was fine what we had before, it was slow, and it was difficult. It was difficult to sometimes retrieve records, and the business professionals were uh, annoyed. It's like yeah. too slow. We got to move. We got uh, investors ready to give us our money. We don't want to wait. So, but you, know, you need to do it right. And so we need to improve the system. Hmm. Uh, if anyone's interested, I just went and looked it up. The most corrupt countries in the world. Yeah, it seemed interesting. Yeah, uh, no surprise. Any no, no surprise here. A tie for number one: North Korea and Somalia, <laughs> uh, followed by Afghanistan, Sudan, Angola, and South Sudan. A tie. Iraq and Libya. Another tie. Haiti, uh, Guinea-Bissau, I have to admit, I've never even heard of that country, and Venezuela, yet another tie. So actually, there's like six ties on here. So there's about 18 countries that are in the top 10 <laughs> most corrupt countries. Uh, yeah, anyhow, anyone? We're anyone not invested in any of those countries. You're not invested in any of those countries. Okay. <laughs> we, don't, we, we try and stay away from the Star Wars bars of uh, corrupt countries. Right. You don't, you don't <laughs> need, I don't think you need to go down 150 countries to find some good investments, yeah. right? Well, these days, I mean, yield is hard to find. you got to go right, right. to ever scarier places, it seems. Yeah. So, uh, Putting risk uh, into it. Right, right. <laughs> uh, now, John, what's next for, for your team and your effort there? I mean, is, is this growth of, of your uh, your team and, and, and the kind of process you're building out accelerating or you kind of done for now or, or what's going on there? At the moment, it's plateauing, really. it's uh, uh, There'll be some natural growth. Again, there's two drivers. Some of it's the regulation, but the firm is growing. Uh, and that also, we just have to keep up. More products, more types of strategies, more funds. So the legal team has to keep up with that. When you set up funds, you need additional compliance officers for the funds. And so that keeps us busy, and, and so we'll certainly at a, you know, grow on average at the, at the rate of the firm. In terms of how much we're going to need to deal with, 
a, a lot of the legislation and regulations are still working their way out. So you have things from Dodd-Frank that still haven't even been adopted yet, like the incentive comp rules. Uh, those have not been uh, yet adopted. And there are some new ones that are, 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 are coming on. So we'll need to uh, adjust for that. But a lot of it will depend on uh, uh, the political environment and the, the, the leadership at the SEC and what happens with that going forward yeah. to yeah. see Cultural. exactly how much it's going to change. I mean, we've written about this just it, this mainly across Wall Street a lot, just about how compliance has really, since the financial crisis in Todd Frank, been one of the hiring booms for um, the banking industry, the finance industry. Um, but how much is technology going to sort of all you know sort of start being able to limit the or not limit the hiring, but allow companies to do more with less people? Like any area. It's yeah. going to start to make it uh, reduce uh, the headcount needs. I mean, if you can have robo advisors, uh, <laughs> you can you can have robo compliance people. <laughs> but for example, if you're, we have uh, we review people's emails. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you have the same thing here, but so the emails are reviewed by compliance folks, and certainly technology solutions can make that a lot faster over a period of time. However much better we're able to do it now than we could do. Five yeah. years ago, five years from now, it's going to be even better, more sophisticated, more effective, and that is going to be the continued trend. Uh, I mean, the AML stuff we do clearly reduces needs for people just because we can do the, use this, the, the the programs to save do a lot of the flagging time. for yes, you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, but I imagine it's kind of a an interesting line there because it seems that you know deals are always changing, and sometimes there's it seems like there's part art and part science to deciding how much legal risk you can take on in, in a certain aspect of a deal. Yeah. Well, that, so it's, that, it's, since we don't want to put my, uh, me out of a job, that robot <laughs> advice we're not ready for yet. We still need the judgment calls, and we still need you know, plenty of people in the, in, in the group doing their work, to your point. Um, but it's more sort of what I would call some of the same reasons that headcounts being reduced on Wall Street. Some of the more routinized work can be uh, streamlined and have people who can uh, access the technology yeah. to make themselves more effective. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really did want to ask you about um, – I kind of brought this up earlier, and I think we got away from it, but I really am interested in this. How much interaction is there between your firm and regulators, the yeah. SEC, other regulators? You know, like how do you, how do you keep the lines of – because, look, it, it's no secret that Washington has turned a greater eye on Wall Street in the wake of the financial crisis. You know, how do you how do you keep the lines of communication yeah. open there? It's great to have a regular dialogue with your as a generic issue uh, to have a regular dialogue with your regulators so they know you and they understand you. Now, certainly, I don't want a regular dialogue with enforcement, but as a the, there are a lot of areas at the SEC, whether it's investment management, which is the rulemaking authority. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we look to when we do that, whether we do that through industry associations, we do that through their they, – they, they, they have a program actually called the, uh, the Senior Level Engagement Program where they reach out to large firms not in a non-confrontational, non-exam non context. Uh, uh, don't want to talk about our specific interactions with them, but right. just to give you the fine. program that yeah. people are – that they're very focused on the same thing we are, which is – we're looking for opportunities for them to understand our business because mm -hmm. they'll do a better job if they are better informed on how our business works, what are the risks, what are the real issues. Uh, we interact with them, uh, as I mentioned, not only at 
settings where they'll come to talk and industry associations where people, either me, others will go. Um, we also are of a regular, uh, uh, oftentimes through these associations, in terms of commenting on proposed rules. So it's a nice formal way that you can make sure they're hearing us on on, on, on proposed rulemaking that's going to affect us. So there's informal, formal ways that we need to have that dialogue. You know, in some industries, it's a little easier. So mm -hmm. if you're a regulated utility, you're going right. to be dealing with your regulator all the time in a different way than an asset manager is. But I still think the point, which is you should look for opportunities as part of your compliance effort to have them understand you, be engaged with them, is essential. Right. One of the, and this is sort of a broader, broadening it out question, but you know, you he, we've heard you hear from CEOs of banks, CEOs of small companies, you hear this sort of across the board that you know regulation has been a huge burden. Blackstone is one of the largest through its portfolio companies, employers. Do you, how much of a sense or insight does it, do you guys get that you know of the burden that regulation has come on, you know, corporate America? Yeah. Well. Regulation is um, can be very beneficial, like a drug can be very beneficial, but what you're getting to is side effects. What, what are the side effects of putting in this regulation? What's the cost? And when you look at Dodd-Frank, which clearly resulted in more capitalized, better capitalized banks, it also concurrently, during the period since Dodd-Frank, there have been studies that show there's been a 41% decline in community banks. I think that goes to your point, which is, as you are smaller and you don't have the resources of a J.P. Morgan or Blackstone, it can be really tough, and it's not necessarily a good thing to have that kind of burden in terms of cost-benefit of what you might otherwise lose. But even for bigger firms like us, if what you, what you really want to avoid is – everybody would agree with this. They might debate the result, but everybody would want to avoid complex – Regulations that just as as, as Robert Heller said, uh, federal uh, former Federal Reserve Governor, result in deadweight bureaucracy right. that restrains the financial system. So I, that's something that it may be most evidence because it's easier for the big firms to handle. But even the big firms, there's no point to of wasted effort diverting resources that could be better used to creating better returns for our beneficiaries, producing. Uh, better portfolio companies creating jobs if it's diverting. And that's where the debate is. You know, is, is this regulation uh, proportionate? Is it cost effective? Is it well tailored? And you know, our, our comment letters uh, that we participate, <laughs> we obviously have constructive suggestions on some of those that we think could be uh, uh, better tailored. But I, you're right that in some ways it's most evident with those smaller firms and the community banks is because I don't have the same kind of data on the smaller private equity firms, although right. I, I, from what I hear anecdotally, much tougher for them uh, uh, to, to compete on some of these areas. But it also affects the big ones, even though it's easier to afford. It doesn't mean that it's sensible uh, right. for them to be uh, uh, paying on it. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you talk about side effects, and I don't want to spin this podcast out into a whole other thing. But, I, I mean, to me, Dodd-Frank is... is a side effect of the bailout of 2008, of the, the response to the financial crisis. There had to be a legal sort of response to what they did to save the banks. It ends up being Dodd-Frank. I think that's a big, 
I just I had to say it. But I think it's a big question about whether or not all of that stuff should have or could have happened differently or whatever. Well, just I, don't, I know you and I were talking about it in the newsroom yesterday, Grosser, and we had different well, opinions no, on it. I just no, actually, you. Uh, but don't you think that's it? Don't you think that's kind of a long? Hold way? on, we were talking about <laughs> okay. two different things. Um, no, I think the real issue is what you see is the pendulum swings on regulation, and this has been throughout our history. You know, you have a financial crisis, you have, you know, a, a, you know something happen, and the regulation goes this way, and then it'll swing back. You, and then Look, you have uh, deregulation. A- Andrew Jackson in the Second Amer- uh, Second Bank of the yeah. United States, uh, he talked about. Uh, the prostitution for the benefit of the few against the many. So though, that's kind of resonates. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, f- uh, so this is this, I'd say the combination of what you're you're, you're hitting on, which is both a, little, a, a strain of anti-financial institution bias in the American history, as well as these pendulum swifts, which you also saw after the depression, the villainization mm-hmm. of bankers, uh, is something that is part of the political context now that is difficult for it not to affect the regulatory context. I, and, and just from you know my personal perspective, it, you know w- one of the hardest things to do is regulation, and it's especially hard to do when emotions and feelings are you know at a peak, and, and you know and, and it gets politicized. Um, you know that's yeah, well, that's the hardest part to you know about doing it because you, what you want is I think everyone realizes that you need regulation and you need smart regulation. I'm just saying and maybe it's a, a little too libertarian of me that if if you had let the capital markets play their role and let the the chips fall where they should have in 2008, you would not have needed a thousand page document called Dodd Frank to redo regulations. Well, if you let me wander with you. Wander, yeah. yeah, wander with me a little bit, yeah, John. The finan- I know we don't want to. You know, they'll take a few minutes of this for a few minutes. The Financial Crisis uh, Inquiry Board. I mean, they were split, and that yeah. split reflected the political divisions because the majority view was that the big problem was there was not enough regulation. That if we had more regulation, this would have been prevented. So the solution is we should have lots of regulation. Right. The minority view was it was a bubble. Uh, uh, it was interest rates. It was uh, housing uh, uh, fervor, uh, government policies. In fact, that diverted resources into ha- been a whole different slant right. from the minority view, which really uh, is an unresolved issue, as uh, evidenced on this discussion right now. <laughs> and it was probably all of it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's probably all of it. Well, and um, I think additionally, you know, co- finance is a complicated game played by some very smart people who are good at finding their ways, fi- finding ways to kind of uh, work around the constraints that are that are limiting them. So, you know, whatever regulatory context you're operating in, it seems like it kind of take on a life of its own. And sometimes water finds its level no matter what the, the regulators are, are trying yeah. to do. But it's tough to roll back. There's a uh, there was a um, uh, House uh, Modern Investment Advisors Modernization Act. It was really pretty modest. Uh, 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 changes to investment advisor. It, it eliminated some duplications, some updates, a little capital formation here, and uh, passed the House on a somewhat bipartisan basis. Uh, but there's already a threatened veto. It's very tough uh, hmm. to, once you, uh, you, know, you have the view of this need for regulation, right. to get a little bit uh, uh, taken back. But that, I would say, is a little bit of sunshine that you could actually get some bipartisan uh, uh, bipartisan support for a bill that would make at least some 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 changes yeah. in uh, updating uh, some of the regulation. Mm-hmm. All right, let's let's leave it there. Uh, John Finley, Chief Legal Officer at Blackstone, I really want to thank you for coming in today. We thank really you appreciate for your me. time. We really enjoyed being here.
All right, everyone, thank you for listening, and we will catch up with you soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.